Welcome back to another edition of the Disney Dish Podcast with Jim Hill. It's me, Len Testa, and you know that we're still in August Orlando because with the heat index today, it's 108 outside. Remember, kids, that's in the shade. And that also tells me that, of course, we're just days away from the first Mickey's Not-So-Scary Halloween party on August 17th and merely a couple of weeks away from the start of Food and Wine Festival who does not want a piping hot bowl of cheddar cheese soup right about now. Only Jim Hill. Jim, how's it going? What's so nice about doing Mickey's Not-So-Scary in this sort of weather is you get to take home that solid chunk of candy. <laughs> it will all built together. Right? That's right. Like the hard candy that we got has all liquefied and then re-solidified into yeah. a giant mass. You know, to, <laughs> it does make things a little interesting when you get to the TSA. I swear to God, this is just 35 Milky Ways. <laughs> Have you ever seen nerds fused together <laughs> like this? When Hannah was young, her first Halloween costume that we ever got her was an actual dinosaur outfit. That's what had the you know the tail. It was like stuffed. It literally looked like she was Barney, mm -hmm. uh, the dinosaur, but you know green and with mm -hmm. a tyrannosaurus mouth and a, a giant tail. So two funny things uh, about the costume. One, before we went out, I made little houses out of playing cards, and got on the floor and filmed her walking over them like Godzilla. Oh, <laughs> I have to see this. Okay. And then the uh, this, but the funny thing was, and this reminds yeah. me of Mickey's Not So Scary Halloween. The day that we took her out, it was, mm -hmm. a, it was an unseasonably warm Halloween. And mm -hmm. she lasted maybe 15 minutes in that costume before mm -hmm. we took her out of it because she was just done. So we, we basically walked her around semi-naked and said, please give this child candy. Here's her costume. Because <laughs> it was, I think it was like 89 or 90 when, when we oh. were doing it in, oh. you know, in October in North Carolina. Yeah. I can't imagine what these kids are going to do next week no. in Orlando. I don't know. I believe the phrase you're looking for here, Len, is face paint. <laughs> That's my costume. Look at this. I got a unicorn on me. Give me candy. <laughs> Enjoy my tomato face. There we go. All right. Also this week, Jim, the Walt Disney Company has announced its third quarter results. On the theme park side, they said uh, attendance was up 1%. There was some holiday-related year-over-year stuff there. I think last year there were two holidays in this quarter. This year there were only one. But the interesting thing, I think, from my perspective was, looking forward, Disney said that resort reservations are down 2% for this quarter, prices up 7%. Now, we talked about this in a previous show, how we had started to see hotel deals popping up on Priceline and also for cast members at ridiculously low, low rates. What, uh, what do you think uh, Disney's concern is here? It really is not a coincidence that we are hearing these conversations about the fast-tracking of Epcot's nighttime show they need to give people a reason to come here right now because there's a lot of people who frankly have done the math and it's like look galaxy's edge now isn't supposed to open till the late fall and as len keeps pointing out when you say late fall at disney that means december 20th so why go to walt disney world at all when in 18 months this amazing thing that's supposed to change the theme park world is supposed to open and this is only going to get worse len it is because i'm hearing mid-september disney's going to announce their ticket price increase where they can move to seasonal pricing so it's an awkward time for them to be raising prices when the resort reservations are down, right? Yeah, but at the same time, you know how Disney works their magic. I mean, there's how many rooms right now in the inventory 
are out because of what construction for the Riviera and what's going oh, yeah. on over or they can um, convert it to DVC right yeah, yeah. I mean so. yeah there's a couple of buildings in at least 400 rooms in all-star movies right now being mm-hmm. down down for refurb I think they're finishing up pop century so there's you know any given time there's probably a thousand rooms out mm-hmm. uh, out of inventory just for for general maintenance if not more but they've got to get all of that done by the 50th. That, but that helps their occupancy though. So the resort reservations are down 2%, taking into account mm-hmm. all of the rooms that have moved to DVC inventory and all of the rooms that are currently out for refurbishments now. That is interesting. The thing that's surprising to me about illumi- the Illuminations mm-hmm. is that we haven't heard it, the announcement yet. And I, and I don't know what Disney's waiting on that because you and I have both got the alerts from insiders mm-hmm. saying the blog post is written. It's a matter of someone pushing the button and the button hasn't been pushed yet. Is it they're, they're just waiting for a more fortuitous timing, like the ticket price increase? Are they? Are, you think they're going to do that? They're going to uh, sandwich the, the price increase around big announcements to sort of soften the blow? <laughs> you know, it's when you wrap the blanket around the two by four. It's a soft bludgeon. Yeah, I mean, to be able to talk about this amazing show that's coming and the wonderful technology, at the same time, you know, kind of the bait and switch to, we're switching to this new admissions method that, frankly, is going to take off a number of people. Didn't they do that with the last price increase in February? It was like sandwiched around announcements? Yeah. (sighs) But again, this is Disney's standard operating system. You know, just sort of like you stress the show and you put that in the spotlight and you you sort of play down the fact that, yeah, we bumped up the prices again. So uh, I think the next time we might hear then about an Illuminations event might be uh, right around the time this ticket price thing goes in. We'll see what happens. Mm -hmm. Speaking of uh, of other things, and I don't know why we didn't leave the show up with this, uh, Jim, but rumor has it you've seen the Millennium Falcon Right in Disneyland. How do I say this without getting somebody in trouble? I have friends who are working on the project. <laughs> the feds are already calling you in the background right there now. There we go. Right? There we go. That's that's, that's a security <laughs> right there. Israel. Okay, folks. Yeah. I'm sorry. I, I have to go pack a bag. I'll be in Canada, Len. Uh, so <laughs> look at the time. Gotta go. <laughs> okay, so. They are working on this attraction because, again, face it, we are eleven months out. I've heard. I've heard Anaheim is is much farther along. That it is, but okay. the problem is that they are still working on Millennium Falcon. What does the ride vehicle look like? Well, our, let's talk about capacity first. They're gonna. The, first of all, there are six seats inside of the pilot compartment in order to ensure that this thing has decent capacity. There are seven pods in operation at any one time. So that's 42 people who are piloting the Millennium Falcon at any one time. I am hearing a three and a half minute ride cycle. Again, you're seated inside the cockpit of the Millennium Falcon, so but you're looking out through that window array that we've all seen from the film. Okay, all right, fair enough. In order to pull off that effect, because again, the capsule moves in conjunction with, with the imagery, you're looking out into basically a circular space. That's sort right. of a, a half dome, so to speak. Yeah, so my understanding of it was, based on the description, mm-hmm. I'm not saying I've seen it, is sort of like the Illuminations globe shape for a ride vehicle. 
the that's, the mechanism itself that, yeah, that, you, that? your description is probably a, a little tighter than mine you're fixing on the candy shell on the outside i'm dealing okay, with the crunchy yeah, nougat enough, okay. and here's the problem with the crunchy nougat anybody who's ridden mission space and knows the pseudo bogus you know hey being a pilot be sure to hit your button and okay navigate right. hit your button there's this false interactivity in the uh, in mission space where it looks like you're doing stuff but it doesn't actually impact the okay. ride so this is the thing about the Millennium Falcon. They want initially, and let's stress that initially because we'll get to that in a moment, wanted real interaction. They wanted, depending on which of the six seats you're occupying inside of the Millennium Falcon, your actions directly impact what happens to the point where if you don't do your job and the Millennium Falcons crashes, the ride's over. Oh my god. <laughs> Six hour wait in line over in 30 seconds. <laughs> and that's it. You have nailed it. That is the thanks, problem. Thanks for coming, folks. And walk through the gift shop on the way. So number one, I think we're confirming here, hmm. you will actually guide the ship. The rumor is true. Absolutely true. If you know what you're doing, the rewrite of the original version of the Millennium Falcon experience was insane. You could have multiple rides with infinite incomes and out, or outcomes. But the problem is they've been doing the playtesting in and around Glendale. They've been recruiting people to come in and they've been making a point of initially they were bringing groups of friends together and then they were bringing mm -hmm. in individuals who don't know one another. So, you know, it's not a question of they could quickly build a team or assign roles or that sort of thing. And what they're finding is that it's, it's frustrating people more than it's entertaining people. Oh, yeah, because if you're, if you're a group of four, mm -hmm. you've got two yahoos with you who, who mm -hmm. don't know how to fly a spaceship, yep. and they're responsible for crashing it. You've waited six hours in line. This thing's over. Now what? Yeah. Oh, that is a challenge, isn't it? Yeah. This is not a happy moment. You know, the problem is no, this steel's is just, in place. You know, it's just... Yeah, from what I understand, from what, I understand you've, uh, what you've seen is, is physically there. It's yeah. not like... Well, Disney World, it's it's actually there in Disneyland. Yeah. They are now sort of having to retrofit after the fact. And the computing power that's involved with controlling this imagery is oh. Pentagon-level stuff. Yeah, I mean, stuff that you would have used to make a movie 10 years ago. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, yeah, but you're doing it in real time and flying a spaceship. Okay, so the game, the game plays the challenge. Yes. They're having to figure out how to make it so that you don't crash instantly. And I've got to say... Back when I first got my first set of computers, mm -hmm. I would fly flight simulators mm -hmm. a lot. And the, the beauty of, of them back in the day was you could start the game, figure out within three minutes how mm -hmm. to play flight simulator, and then play it and, and learn more. The new flight simulators, and I'm not joking on this, I you know, tried to boot up one the other day. I couldn't figure out how to take off. It was that complicated yeah. a game these days. I mean, and, and granted, it's much more realistic. The controls are much more realistic. The scenery is fantastic. You could probably use it to fly an actual plane mm -hmm. if you if you needed to. However, the learning curve on that was so steep, it, it wasn't any fun and they gave up. Yeah. I think that's the problem that they're facing with the Millennium Falcon. And the other thing is in Southern California, Disneyland draws from the millions of locals who live within 100 miles of the park. So language really isn't an issue. When you go to Walt Disney World and you think of the number of international travelers that will be climbing into this thing, I mean, this isn't a case of, okay, we'll put more monitors in the queue. We'll give them more information. <laughs> when you say Chewy, put up the blast yields, you're not thinking, how do I say this in Portuguese? There we go. <laughs> when you've got kind of an on-the-ball team that knows what they're doing, it's just been stunning. It's all next-level stuff. 
the worry right now is they've delivered an amazing ride experience for 10% of the guests. And the other 90% are going to have, whether it's tech issues or they're going to be frustrated with the other people in the cabin who aren't holding up their end. There's some tweaking going on. There is time to fix this. Yeah, so we're thinking June, July for this. So they've got, I mean, they could have 10 or 11 months get this done i keep hearing the same mantra over and over again that the construction team wants to be able to hand over galaxy's edge at least in anaheim by april 30th then there are two weeks of training then two weeks of cast member only and corporate partners coming in and then there's two weeks in theory provided that there's no hiccup and no issue that they'll be able to get in annual pass holders early and then followed by the grand opening and and then Disneyland steps through the looking glass and we try to figure out how to operate the resort with this hugely popular thing that people will be lining up at five o'clock in the morning to get into. Fly at five o'clock the day before. <laughs> but that's good. I mean if they're if they're intestine just now for this, that means that they've got a plenty of time to work on this. I like the idea that they're starting with an ambitious game mm-hmm. and having to scale it back rather than something that's too simple. I think that bodes well. We'll see what happens on it. The only thing I guess that concerns me about this is that at one point there was even talk of a dedicated Galaxy's Edge website where you, you could literally go to the Millennium Falcon tutorial and be prepped prior to going to the park. <laughs> there's, there's homework before visiting the theme park, Jim. This is sounding better and better every day. <laughs> Every time I visit this place, I am reminded of my love for the game. All right. <laughs> what's, the, what's the line from uh, Moneyball? <laughs> Every time we speak, my love of the game is renewed. <laughs> it's just the way Brad Pitt says it. It's there we go. Mm-hmm. Tell you what, Jim, let's do a quick break, and we will come back and talk about another transportation-related issue, uh, this time at uh, Disneyland. Yes. Right? Mm-hmm. All right, folks, we'll be right back in a minute. And we're back. All right, uh, Jim, you're going to talk a little bit about an anniversary of a, a little bit of a, a, a tragedy. It actually is a tragedy. It's a little bit of a downer. But you're going to talk about a, a story at Disneyland. I do want to point out one thing, though, because this is our transportation-themed podcast. Yep. I've been pricing Disney Cruise Line cruises for next year, part mm-hmm. of updating the unofficial guide to the Disney Cruise Line. Jim, do you know how, how expensive a Disney Cruise Line is next summer? on a Western Caribbean seven-night cruise for four people? Take a wild mm-hmm. guess. As how, as to, so inside cabin, least expensive cabin on the ship. Seven right. nights, Western Caribbean, did going I, next summer. Did I hear correctly, have they bumped this by 15%? It is, actually. So it's $9,100 almost oh. to, for a family of four, two adults, two kids, ages eight and six, mm-hmm. on an inside cabin, so no windows, uh, on, the, uh, on the Fantasy next year. If you wanted an actual balcony, it would go to $9,700. So it's just a little below ten grand. That is ten grand for a week. When are we going to start seeing the first new ships? I mean, of the three that are 2021, being... I believe. So we'll, um, next year, in 2019, mm-hmm. we should start seeing the very first pricing for the first itineraries. So we don't know the name of the ship yet. I'm thinking one of them is going to be Celebration. Mm-hmm. But we, haven't, we don't know the names of the ships. We don't know any details. We don't know anything about anything yet on it. Although we do have some insiders, I'll, I'll check with them okay. on it over in uh, over in Germany and see what's uh, see what's going on. Uh, supposedly, that is kind of what's behind this price increase. That the fear is that once they start 
putting out the names of the new ships and start mentioning the amenities and that sort of thing. 50th anniversary, hey, let's do the cruise with the new ship and let's visit the resort. Oh, right. They'll have one of the new ships ready, yeah. Yeah, and so there's a lot of discussion now because the Star Wars Day at Sea, the Marvel Day at Sea, these have all been launched. And the question is, well, what are we doing in 2019 to 2020 to compel people to get on the boats for those who are going to be, well, I want to wait to try the new ship. I want to be among the first to do that. I mean, this is going to be kind of a tricky play. I'm hoping it drops prices a little bit. Jeez. I mean, because 10 large for a week cruise is, uh, I mean, granted, it's it's all inclusive and it's a nice ship. Mm-hmm. That's a lot of money to swallow. Yeah. Onto something more pleasant or not. <laughs> the thing of Disney Dish is we tell stories here that aren't necessarily the ones that the folks of the Walt Disney want company want us to tell and what Len has been sort of referring to at the top of this the segment of the show is that August 14th is the anniversary of a pretty significant tragedy in in Disneyland history that but to explain what happened you have to understand that for years Anaheim had a service that literally took people flew them from LAX to Disneyland. Tens of thousands of people during the 13 years that this was in operation took advantage of the service. The original helicopter landing spot, Len, was right outside of Tomorrowland. Walt was this transportation enthusiast. He loved the notion that you'd be in Tomorrowland and and to be able to look at, and here's a real Sikorsky helicopter coming in for a landing. Oh, I totally get it. You've dealt with Los Angeles area traffic oh, yeah. before where it, it could take two hours mm-hmm. in the afternoon to, to do what is a legitimately a, a, a 10 minute drive. Mm-hmm. I would take a helicopter from the airport. Yeah. What was particularly cool about this is in May of 55, TWA, who was the sponsor of, of Flight to the Moon inside of the park, they actually offered a ticket from New York City to Disneyland. Flight LAX. <laughs> really? Yeah, and we'll take you straight to the park. I w- wonder what the what the airport code for Disneyland was. I, you know, I don't know. I'll, uh, I'll, no, all I'll, right, I'll, something, something to research. Okay, go ahead, anyway. In 1955, a helicopter flight to Disneyland, $4 each way. Wow. And each of these helicopters could carry 20 passengers and three crew members. They made multiple trips a day. When you see those images of John F. Kennedy in the park, that's how he got there. He took the helicopter. And and Walt loved this. He just loved the whole idea of it. But the, the locals obviously did not. The motels that were leaping up around the park, the noise of the helicopter coming and going was disturbing for their guests. Anaheim City Council also... Just sort of like, this is a full-size helicopter coming in and landing. I mean, and the fact they're just letting them off in the parking lot and, you know, hey, go over and walk over to the ticket booths. It's like, no, 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 no. You're going to continue to operate this thing. You're going to need a terminal. And, you know, that's going to need, it's going to need an indoor waiting area and, uh, you know, public restrooms. And the Los Angeles Airways, the company that, that had been running this service, fought hard against it because they were worried about what it would do to their price point to have to support a facility like this and staff it. Then early 1968, the motel owners around Disneyland banded together and started to to talk about, you know, they think the helicopters are dangerous and there's this noise pollution issue. And so here's Los Angeles Airway trying to fight on two fronts here. The city council wanting the terminal and, Mm -hmm. you know, the, the motel owners coming after them to noise and the safety. At the worst possible time, they have a crash. The, the, the May 22nd, 1968, 
a helicopter flying from Anaheim to LAX. A rotor flies off of the copter. It ends up crashing in a dairy farm just up the road in Paramount, California. All 20 passengers and the three crew members on board were killed. The crew that operated this copter, they were pros. One of the witnesses describes that as they're losing altitude, the door opens and one of the crew members is frantically throwing out mailbags trying to light the load. It lands like a rock. At that time, it was the worst civilian helicopter crash in U.S. history. And Wow, really? Yeah. Okay. And it turns out it was one bolt, one single bolt that was holding one of the five main rotary blades had come loose. And that was enough that the rotor blade flew off and with only four blades, they couldn't keep the thing aloft. And the ambulances were on scene within minutes. Eight crews of units from the, the Los Angeles County Fire Department were out there. And so the investigation begins. Los Angeles Airways is reeling from this because again, for 13 years, they operated with a single incident and they have this yep. crash. And they're, so through the beginning of the investigation, and then 74 days later, it happens again, Len. Oh, jeez. It's leaving LX, headed to Disneyland. It's a Sikorsky 61 helicopter. Same exact thing. One rotor uh, separates from the spindle that holds those blades to the rotor head. And the hugely densely populated part of Los Angeles, California. And this is a, a tragedy. 18 passengers on board and the three lose their lives. But it could have been so much worse if the pilot had not been the pro that he was. I mean, he's, he's up 1,500 feet in the air when they lose the blade. And he's looking out over Compton, and there is one tiny little piece of green. It was called Looters Park. It's a, it was a recreational area. There were 30 kids in this area when they look up and there's this helicopter barreling down toward them. And they can actually hear the pilot yelling get out of the way you know that, that sort of thing and he manages to bring it down in this one piece of green now mind you again wow. it explodes on impact and the, honestly the toughest part of this story Lynn, is among the victims was christopher balin who was the 13 year old grandson of clarence balin the founder and president of los angeles airways so to have two crashes inside of 74 days and to lose his own grandson they shot it down. Yeah. Yeah. It's not going to go forward. Yeah. Yeah. The, the NTSB also has to do its investigation. And in both cases, it's like, look, this was not pilot error. These were pros. These were guys who'd done it every day. This was just yeah. a freak metal fatigue issue that, that had happened to two copters in their fleet. But the founder felt snake bit at that point. So they shut it down. Yeah. And it wasn't till 1972 that Golden West Airline decided that, okay, you know, people love this. I mean, there, there were people who would still arrive in LAX and let's let's get in the copter. Well, there is no copter anymore. And it's like, are you kidding me? Oh, that was the greatest part. I didn't have to drive on the five. And Golden West had it up and running for five months in 1972. And then at that point, largely again, because the price had increased at this point, it was now $16 a person each way. And that didn't make it attractive or seem all that affordable to people. Really? $16? Well, that's if you do the 1972 versus 2018, I want to say that's the equivalent of $96, $97? $100? Eh, 
not uh, out of the question, but okay, yeah. more expensive. All right, yeah. go ahead. I get it. So, you know, it, it went from being a luxury to a luxury. And yeah. also by this point, noise pollution, particularly in Southern California, was a really for real serious issue. And the motels were able to push back successfully. And, and this service just went away. But 50 years since this happened, folks, and it just, there's so many times people will show me photographs of the copters over the park. And it's like, Oh, you know, when did they do that? And you know, that would have been cool. And it's like, yeah, it was for a while. So we'll have to wait now for flying cars, which will be much safer. And hopefully they'll be easier to operate than the Millennium Falcon. But hey, I didn't say that. <laughs> so. Hope so too. Mm-hmm. All right, folks, you've been uh, listening to the uh, Disney Dish podcast with Jim Hill. Uh, we are produced fabulously by Aaron Adams, who, as far as I know, does actually know how to pilot the Millennium Falcon. Punch it! <laughs> Don't forget, we're on Stitcher and iTunes. Please go there and leave us a review and also ask us any questions and tell us what you'd like to hear next. For Jim, this is Len. We will see you on the next show.